0: And now if you don't already have it open, let us turn to the Old Testament book of Jonah chapter two. You can download a Bible app or you can follow the scripture on the screen. This morning, we're continuing our series through the book of Jonah that we are calling Rediscovering God. Why? Because Jonah is a prophet in ancient Israel who was raised with the knowledge of God, but who turns out, to have created a God of his own making. He needed to be retaught who God truly was and who he truly was. And his prayer from chapter two in the depths of despair becomes our lesson. And through it, we learn about the grace of God and the difference it makes in our lives. Let's read the text together and I'll lead us in a prayer. Let me read Jonah chapter two. From the inside of the fish Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, "In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the deep in the realm of the dead I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me, and all your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, Yet, I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And with that pleasant thought, Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that grace would not be just an abstract idea or a concept or just a word that we casually use. But we pray that grace would be a life-changing reality for our hearts. pray that we would be people who are constantly reliant on your goodness and grace. And if there's anyone here this morning who does not yet know you, I pray that you would reveal your grace towards them through all that you have done in Jesus Christ, your son. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, when the famed author of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis, was asked what the difference was between Christianity and all other religions in the world, he replied, oh, that's easy. It's grace. Indeed, there are estimated 4,200 religions in the world, and the difference between Christianity and all the rest can be summarized in that one little word. The word grace, of course, is used widely by Christians as kind of a shorthand way to describe how God works in our lives. And yet, because the word grace is so familiar to many of us, it can begin to feel like an abstract concept and we, at times, don't experience its life-changing power. This is concerning. The results are subtle but real. Some of us, we, we serve and we're involved in the church, but oftentimes with, with little joy and maybe with a lot of irritation. We're just frustrated. People in the church, overly frustrated with the, the people around us and with our circumstance in life and maybe with what's happening in the church. Others of you might be struggling and wrestling. Maybe some of you even with addictions and you just thought going to church and following some guidelines was gonna do the trick, but you still find yourself Sinking. Maybe others still, your growth is plateaued. You just feel it. You feel dry. I know I've been there many times. Or perhaps you're here with us this morning or joining us online and you're not yet a Christian and you wonder, how is change even possible? I've tried all these things and yet I don't experience inside out change. Is there hope? Yes. What we need is an education in grace. Grace. In fact, we're told in the New Testament that grace becomes our teacher. Notice what the Apostle Paul says in Titus chapter two. It says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And an education is exactly what Jonah got in the belly of a great fish. And that is why one of the great preachers from the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, referred to the belly of the fish as God's college for Jonah. It's the place where Jonah finally learned what he needed to learn. It's where he got his education in grace. Jonah is a prophet in ancient Israel. His role was to represent God to his people. But when God called him to preach a message of mercy to his enemies, he ran in the opposite direction. He ran from God. And it took a storm to stop him. But it was there on the seas that as he recognized his sin, he took responsibility for his sin. And he told the sailors of his ship to throw him into the sea. But instead of entering his doom, he unknowingly enrolled into God's college. God provided a great fish to preserve his life. And it was there that he learned his most valuable lesson. So here in chapter two, God shows grace to Jonah in three ways, by hearing his prayer, by saving him from death, and by sending him back out on mission. And I want to say to us this morning, friends, that there are three lessons of grace and I want us all to take them to heart. So what is it that Jonah learns in the belly of that fish and what does it teach us about grace? Well, the first lesson is this, grace surprises us. How? How is God's grace and favor surprising to Jonah and why should it be surprising to us? Well, if you think about it, there's actually two ways in which grace surprises Jonah and two ways in which grace should surprise us. First, grace arrives in desperate places. Because let's be honest, the last place that you would expect to see the grace of God at work is in the depths of the seas. And yet, God provided this great fish to preserve the life of this rebellious prophet. And it's actually in this place as desperate and as difficult as it may have been that it absolutely became formative for Jonah. It's where he got his education. Look at his his prayer in verse 2 of chapter 2. From inside the fish. This is where he learned his lesson. Maybe you could underline or, or highlight that particular phrase because oftentimes we think that the lessons that we really need to learn can only be lessons learned in the valley of prosperity and goodness and when things are going really, really well. And yet with Jonah, it was the exact opposite. And yet there, even still, he was able to experience the grace of God. This is good news, friends. It was there from inside the fish, not from like his holiday on the beach back in the land of Israel. It was from inside the fish that Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Verse two, he said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. God orchestrated this circumstance to teach Jonah what he truly needed to learn. And as much as I do not like to admit it, in fact, I actually hate it, some of the greatest lessons that I have learned have come through the greatest hardships. Nobody says amen to that. We usually don't clap. We're like, yeah! Like, that's not fun. That's not exciting. That's not something I look forward to. Events or circumstances which may be so bitter, we can all look back and reflect how later they would bring lessons that we never could have foreseen from the depths of the dead. In fact, I would, if I'm honest, sometimes it takes the depths for me to truly learn to pray. I'd love it if I could just learn the lesson in, in the easiest of circumstances, but oftentimes it is in the hardest. But even still, God is there. And friends, know this, the encouragement is there is no situation so bad, no situation so bleak or desperate that God's grace cannot operate. I say this because some of you this morning may feel that your circumstance right now is a mess. And maybe it's actually due to some of your very own choices. Maybe you're just wallowing in some of the consequences of your own sin or your own bad decisions, or you've run so far from God and you just think that I'm in so deep, there's no way that God's grace could meet me here. I've made too many mistakes. I've screwed it up too many times. There's no way, surely there's no way that God's grace could meet me here. If that's you, you need to hear this. The good news is that the grace of God turns places of desperation into places of deliverance. You think you have it bad? Look at Jonah. He's literally in a fish at the bottom of the sea. That's terrible. I don't know how bad your situation is, but I don't know if you want to compare and contrast to Jonah, but that's pretty bad in my estimation. It's like the worst case scenario. He calls it the depths of the dead in his prayer. And yet it was in that very place that God appointed that he learned this greatest of lessons. It's what some writers call God's severe mercies. Situations or circumstances that he allows into our lives that though difficult, actually teach us and yield some of the greatest fruit we could ever possibly imagine. If that's you, you need to know that God's grace turns these places of desperation into places of deliverance. But this chapter is not only about how grace can arrive in desperate places. More importantly, notice, grace arrives for desperate people. Prideful Jonah understands that his desperate situation was actually the result of his desperate condition. See, otherwise, we just put the the, the weight of burden of what's wrong with the world on everything else outside of us and never actually deal with what's going on inside of us. That's a problem. Because the most dangerous thing in the world is not simply what happens outside, it's actually what's happening on the inside. And Jonah recognizes this. He acknowledges that the events of the storms were actually God's righteous response to his sin. Notice in verse three, he says, "'You, Lord,' hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me, and all your waves and breakers swept over me. See, this was important because up until this point, Jonah seemed to be blind to the grace of God. But notice, it was through his failure that he began to see it. And I must confess, it is oftentimes through my failure that I actually learned this lesson the most. It took a descent into the sea to finally come to terms with the depths of his need. Because the real deliverance that Jonah needed was not deliverance from the sea, it was deliverance from sin. And he makes this clear in his prayer. Look at verses 4 through the beginning of verse 6. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seedweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sang down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. So drama. And I love it. So how do we know that Jonah is learning about grace? How do we know that we are learning about grace? The answer is he surprised by it. And why is he surprised by it? Because he sees the depth of his need for it. I cried out and yet you heard me. In spite of Jonah's sin, God heard his prayer. It's shocking. See, think about this. If grace is not changing you, it may be that you have ceased to be surprised by it. And if we cease to be surprised by grace, we will stop growing in grace. That's how it works. Listen, God's grace is a gift, but let's be honest, we're not always changed by a gift, right? And some of you are like, yeah, I only have to point back to last Christmas or my birthday. I wasn't changed by that gift. Not every gift will change your life. In fact, I would say that most of you have received from your bank, a free pen and I can guarantee that your life was not changed by it. Or I don't know, maybe it was. You're like, thank you. Thank you, Bank of America. I was in the depths and you gave me a pen. So you can get a lot of things for free. You can receive a lot of gifts in your life, but not all those gifts change your life. Not that I have anything against pens. But if you got that free pen from your bank, why doesn't it change your life? Well, it probably didn't cost much You can probably get one yourself and it's not indispensable. There's always a pencil. So when does a gift change your life? It's when you see your need for it. Let me give you this example. If someone showed up to your door this week and knocked and you opened and said, what are you doing here? Hey, I just wanted to let you know that you had a tax bill and I paid it. How would you respond? depends on how much you owe. <laughs> Some of you are like, oh, could this be my miracle this week? Okay, if you only owe $25 and a person comes to your door and knocks and triumphantly, they're like, I have paid your tax bill. They're like, wow, did you buy me a coffee too? Because it's basically the same price. <laughs> if it's a small debt, like, sure, okay, thanks, I guess. It's kind of weird. But what if you owed to the United States government, $1 million. And you were in distress and despair. And you're like, where shall I run? My credit cards are maxed out. What am I gonna do? And somebody from church knocks on your door and says, I have paid your tax bill. You would fall to your knees in gratitude because they paid a debt that you could never pay on your own. You know a gift is changing your life when you see your need for it. See, friends, we need to remember how desperate we truly are without God's grace in order to glory and to revel in how amazing grace really is. One of the reasons why we're not amazed by grace is because we've stopped realizing how desperately we needed it. Maybe you got saved many, many years ago, but over the years, you just grow a little bit jaded and you're like, yeah, God's grace, it's fine, but like overall, I'm good. Like, you know, I wasn't, I used to do big sins back then, but you know, I only deal with little sins now. But know this, there's only such a thing as a little sin if there's a little God. And you and I are just in as much need of grace today than we ever were in the past. I love how the French philosopher and theologian Pascal put it. He said, grace is indeed required to turn a man into a saint. Whoever doubts this does not truly know what a man is or what a saint is. And what the Frenchman is is saying is you really don't understand grace until you see how great your need is and then you will appreciate how remarkable the cure is. Here's the deal friends, the Bible says we are all condemned in sin. You're like, oh, but I'm a good person. Nope, you too. Oh, but but I think I can do this on my own. Nope, that is also pride. That's also a sin. So you are also condemned. We are all, (laughs) welcome to church. We are all, as Jonah says in verse six, we're barred forever. We are dead in our sins and in our trespasses. Do we know that? Do we know this morning that we are desperately lost without grace? Or do you think you're good? Be honest. Be honest. You're like, I, I got this. Like, God helps me, sure, but it's more like a spiritual me that kind of gets me started and then I could do the rest on my own, right? That's how many of us, like, oh, I just need a little tap up of grace. Like, hey, God, I killed it this week, read my Bible a lot, prayed a lot. Like, I'm doing this on my own, but I could use like a little extra 17%. So I'm going to come to church, get a little, you know, juiced up and then I'm, I'm ready to go. Sadly, that's how some of us operate. But we need to be reminded again and again. And sometimes it takes difficult circumstances. Sometimes it's in the midst of our failure that we really show what we believe about grace. Listen, how do you respond when you fail? I'll tell you how I respond. When I fail, I beat myself up. Because somehow in beating myself up, I think that I can like earn or cleanse myself. But in that moment, it shows I'm not really resting in the grace of God. I'm not really that desperate because I've taken matters into my own hand. See, here in the depths, Jonah learns that grace arrives in desperate places. It doesn't matter how far you've fallen. And it arrives, more importantly, for desperate people. Be surprised by that today. But the education doesn't end there. It's not just that God hears his prayer. God acts. And we learn the second lesson. First, grace surprises us. But secondly, in God's college, we learn that grace saves us. In the belly of the fish, Jonah shows that he is learning about grace when he acknowledges not one truth, but two. First, that he has sinned, but second, that he cannot fix it. And I can't tell you how important that second point is. It's not just about acknowledging the desperate situation of sin. It is also acknowledging that we cannot do anything about it. In fact, I would say this, you know that grace is working on your heart when you acknowledge both. And the second is just as important as the first. And here's why. Otherwise, you end up with man-centered religion. See, a lot of religious people out there, they acknowledge the reality of sin. They acknowledge what sin is, but they think that they can cleanse themselves. So you might be thinking, oh, our nation's greatest need is to acknowledge their sin. Yes, But it doesn't stop there. We also need to acknowledge that we cannot clean ourselves. We also need to acknowledge that we cannot save ourselves. Notice, as he confesses his despair to a gracious God, where does he look for deliverance? He says in the end of verse six, but you, Lord my God, you brought my life up from the pit. This is so key because we live in a culture of false saviors. And one of those false saviors is myself or yourself. We are constantly told like, whatever problem you have, you can fix it, you can save yourself. And then we post that like, I saved myself for everyone. We post it on all of our socials and everyone's like, yes, you did it! Like, I've got this. But here, Jonah realizes he cannot save himself. We must realize not only that there is the problem of sin, but I cannot solve it. I cannot cleanse myself of it. Otherwise, you're just going to end up as a religious person, pointing out sin everywhere, even within yourself, and never being able to do a thing about it while deceiving yourself that you are through your good works. That's the reality. But here Jonah allows that desperation to cause him to not turn inward, but upward. And that's when you know the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. And here's the good news. Not only does he acknowledge his sin, not only does he acknowledge that he can't do anything about it, but he is absolutely confident that God can. I was once told by, uh, in, 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 in a great book that the gospel is the best news ever followed by the worst news possible. <laughs> That's when you know you're really getting the good news. Is it follow? The worst news possible is you're dead in sins. You could do nothing about it. But the good news is God has acted. So, what's the reason that Jonah could be so confident, even in this Old Testament prayer? What is the reason a sinner could be so confident? I want you to notice in Jonah's prayer, he refers not once, but twice to the temple. Earlier in verse four, he said that's where he was going to look in his prayer. And the temple is what gave him confidence. Look at verse seven. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Why the temple? And what on earth does this have to do with our confidence? Well, the answer is this, because the temple in the Old Testament is the place where sacrifices were made for sin. How could sinful people be brought near to a holy God. The temple wasn't created for God per se, it was created for man. And as sacrifices were made, people were reminded that it was through the death of a substitute on their behalf, paying a price that they owed themselves. So if you were a child raised in ancient Israel and you saw the sacrifices thrown on the altar for sin, you would repeat and rehearse with your family members, they died so that I did not have to. They died so that I did not have to. You would learn the power of a substitute. And as Christians, we look forward to what the temple was pointing to all along, and that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came into our world and he lived the perfect life. And when he went to the cross 2,000 years ago and was crucified, he absorbed the debt that we owe on our behalf so that we might be saved, so that we might be made new, so that we might be accepted. See, grace changes you as you realize that you have a debt that you could never pay. And God paid it for you, but all to unimaginable cost to himself. See, that's how you know you're being changed by grace. Not only that my situation was desperate and not only did God pay, but look to the lengths at which God paid for you. It was at unimaginable cost to himself when he went to the cross so that you and I could be set free. And so it is often in a desperate place where we will learn what we truly need to learn that we cannot, that no one else can meet that need and only God can provide it. Corey Ten Boom, the famous Holocaust survivor once famously said, sometimes you never know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And sometimes it takes that stripping away where you're re amazed at how good God's grace is. This is the education of Jonah. And so it is for us. And Charles Spurgeon put it this way. And speaking of Jonah's spiritual education, he said, we have learned it somewhere in the same college as that in which Jonah learned. He had to go into the whale's belly to learn it. And when he came out, he said, salvation is of the Lord. And we too, in sharp afflictions and pains and griefs have had to learn it and have it burned into us. And we never believed it more thoroughly in our lives than we do now, that if a sinner is saved, it is God's work that saves them and God must have all the glory of it. You're reminded over and over again, oh yeah, that little thought I was flirting with that I could actually do it, no, 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 no. God can do it. And he's already accomplished it for me. And that's where I get my confidence. It was the temple that gave Jonah his confidence of salvation. And in a greater way, it is Jesus Christ who gives us the confidence in our salvation. God hears the prayer of the most stubborn or reluctant of sinners. The person who's just messed it up so bad. Friends, you need to know this. If you feel like you are too far gone, know this. The cross is your guarantee that you will be forgiven. It doesn't matter how we feel about it this morning. Maybe this morning you're carrying the weight of guilt and you're like, okay, I know, I believe and I wanna accept his forgiveness, but I just don't feel like it. Listen, it doesn't matter how you feel. The price has been paid. It doesn't say that you're forgiven based on how you feel about it. It says you're forgiven on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago. It is finished, amen? Hallelujah. doesn't matter how I feel. I don't have to do any work to kind of muster up the right amount of emotion over it. Like Christ paid it, I received it, you are forgiven. That's how sure his salvation is. We get our confidence through the finished work of Jesus Christ. The cross is our guarantee. I have no confidence in myself, but you and I, we can have every confidence in God. So how do I know I'm learning about grace? I look at the cross and I'm amazed that he always gives us a second chance. I look at the cross and I'm amazed that it's never too late to turn back to God. If you're here this morning and you're believing that lie Know this, if you can hear me and you have a pulse, it is not too late. God invites you. He is the God of second chances. And there couldn't be a better picture of that than this rebellious, reluctant prophet in the belly of a great fish at the bottom of the sea who offers up this prayer and God hears him and saves him. See, grace is not an abstract concept. Grace is shown in God's favor to us ultimately in the saving event of the cross. And the cross is the reason that we can come to expect God's grace in all other areas of our lives. So do the gospel math with me for a minute. If forgiveness of sin is my greatest need and if God has already dealt with that greatest need by providing Jesus to live, die, and rise for me, how much more is he going to deal with all my other needs? How much more is he going to show me in grace in all these other areas of life if he's already shown grace in the most fundamental area of my life? See, some of us, we act like, yeah, God, I know you forgive me my sins, but man, I really need help with my job as though that's the bigger problem. <laughs> we need to be reoriented. Our God is gracious and he will be gracious to us. How can we know? It doesn't matter how I feel about it. It's based on the finished work of Jesus. And it is as I am confronted with both my sin and my inability to cleanse myself from my sin and then see that God forgives me of my sin at infinite cost to himself, I am changed. But friends, hear this. Experiencing grace is not a one-time event. And that's why we need this third point. Grace not only surprises us and saves us, but lastly, grace sends us. Grace is what sends us out in life. It is on the basis of knowing the surprising saving grace that Jonah begins now to dedicate himself to the work of God. Look at verse eight and nine. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And so at the end of this prayer, at the end of this chapter, there's a climax when he speaks of God's grace. That key word love in Hebrew is sometimes translated steadfast love or grace, and it is seeing God's grace and salvation that motivates him for mission. And by the grace of God, Jonah is sent, verse 10, and the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. I love the language there. It's messy. Don't sanitize it. It's disgusting. It's <laughs> disgusting. It was messy. But even there, as he thinks about his salvation and God's mission, he acknowledges something that will hinder people from receiving grace. Did you see that? Worthless idols in verse eight. Worthless idols. What is an idol? An idol is anything that we substitute for God. It's anything that we go to, to get what we can only and truly get from God. It doesn't have to be bad things. It can be, it can also be good things. It can be your family. It can be a loved one. It could be a romantic interest. It could be your career. It could be your job. It could be money. Whatever it is that you're functionally running to is like, yeah, I know God's giving me this, but what I really need is this, and this person or this thing can give it to me. That's an idol. And they blind us to our need for grace. They never provide what they're gonna promise, and they stop us from repenting. And that's why it should be alarming for us Or to put it another way, idols block you from receiving grace. Why? Because you're looking somewhere else for it. And so the big question is this. Will Jonah continue to learn the lessons of grace? Or as he does the work, will he forget? And here's where the story of Jonah can be a little bit sobering. Despite his declaration of salvation, it only takes two chapters before he relapses into anger, pride, and bitterness. Because as we'll learn, once he goes to this wicked city of Nineveh and he preaches and sees how God sends grace to those people, he's furious. He explodes. He, he's dissatisfied with God. Why? Why? Because even though he condemned the idols of others, he did not notice the idols that he had himself. Even while he was condemning the idols of Nineveh, he did not acknowledge the idol in his own heart, his own pride, his own self-righteousness, his own ego. And that is what blinded him to his need for the grace of God. And so we see that Jonah's repentance is only partial. Despite this breakthrough that he experiences here, we learn that grace does not continue to be Jonah's teacher. And the question we should ask is, where might this be true for us? It's a hard question, but it's a necessary question. After all, one of the commentators I read this week says, all of us are more like Jonah than we are different from Jonah. Idols will blind us. They will keep us from learning from and leaning upon the grace of God. In fact, we see this warning in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 says, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up to cause trouble and defile many. We don't want to fall short of the grace of God. And I hope that's a sobering warning in a good way that that it would wake us up. But now we might be saying, well, wait a minute, I don't want that to happen. How do I fall short of the grace of God? The answer is simple. You fall short of the grace of God by not receiving it. It's not based on like a work that you do. It's not because you weren't a good enough person this week. That's not it. We only fall short of the grace of God when we stop receiving it. To put it another way, if someone falls short of the grace of God, it's not because it wasn't available, it's because they wouldn't receive it. See friends, God has made his grace abundantly available for me and for every single one of you. And our encouragement today is to be continually reliant and dependent on the grace of God. It's not a one-time event, it is a lifestyle. And here's why this matters for us as a church. Many Christians believe they are saved by grace, but they think they're sanctified by works. Many people say, oh yes, I know Jesus saved me from my old life, but now I am going to change myself and transform myself by all the effort that I have within myself. And if that happens, you will end up becoming harsh with other people. You will end up becoming legalistic, a little bit self-righteous, and you'll just look down your nose at all the other Christians who aren't working as hard as you. You're like, well, I'm just greed by Reality Ventura. I mean, when I look at the effort that I put into my spiritual life, and I do my 27 and a half Bible chapter reading each morning every day, I'm just concerned about my brothers and sisters who read a devotion in the morning, as if you think that's going to sanctify you. I thank God I'm not like them. In fact, I'm very confident of the spiritual life that I've endeavored to craft and build and curate. Friends, that is such a lie. It is such a lie. You are not only saved by grace, you are sanctified by grace, and when you die and you breathe your last and you stand before the presence of the risen Jesus in his new creation, you will be saying, I'm here by grace and nothing but grace, right? You're not going to get to heaven and be like, I did it. And the angels are like, you did it. Yeah, get it. Get in those pearly gates. You did it. That's not going to happen. It is by grace. That's why people who, who understand the nature of sin, understanding the cost to God and understanding his love and his acceptance and his power and the Holy Spirit sent into our lives are the ones who say, it is grace and nothing but grace that keeps me going. Grace is not only about how you start, grace is about how you continue. And if we are going to reflect the grace of God, We must be constantly reliant on the grace of God, amen? After all, it's hard to give away what you don't have, right? It's hard to give away, it's hard to reflect what you do not receive. I remember I've been reflecting on uh, my first job as my kids are getting older and we're talking about like their first job and all that. I reflect as a classic dad, I remember my first job back when minimum wage was a cool 425 Anyone remember those days? Oh, those were hard times. And I got my job at 15 and a half because that's when I could get my permit. And I worked at a small restaurant in my town in Northern California. And they served amazing food. And I had to wash the dishes and serve the food. I was doing like both jobs, but here's the catch. My employee was kind of a jerk and didn't give me an employee meal. So every night that I would go to work, I'd be taking out the food and it would look so good. And then I would give it away. I'd be like, hey, here's your meal. And they're like, wow, this looks great. I'm like, yeah, it does. (laughs) I was starving. I was so hungry. I was looking at this food and I'm just standing at their, their table awkwardly. I'm like, that looks real good. And they're like, oh, okay, honey, when does he go away? Do we tip him now or do we tip him later? Why was it so, I hated those evenings, why? Because I was giving away what I wasn't receiving. Friends, that's sadly the description of a lot of Christians are like, doing all this stuff, like, oh, I'm serving, I'm doing all this, but you're not receiving. And all of a sudden you wonder why you're a little bit more grumpy and a little more like, you know, frustrated and irritated with all the Christians around you, my reminder to you is to reflect and to receive and to feast upon the grace of God, because the good news is, unlike my stingy boss, God has laid out a feast of grace for us, and it is available every day and in every moment, and for every one of you, no matter how far you've gone, no matter what you've done, through Jesus Christ, he invites you to feast on the grace of God today. Think about what this means. Grace means for you today that the pressure to perform is off. For those of you who are just living with that weight, like, oh, I got to perform, I got to perform. Grace means the pressure to perform is off. Grace means that the need to compare yourself to others is relieved. Grace means that the fear of rejection is removed. Grace means the weight of guilt is lifted. Grace means the lack of motivation is reversed. Grace means the search for your acceptance is over. Grace means your longing for security is fulfilled. Grace means that you are accepted, you are empowered, and you are sent with the power of the Holy Spirit. Because know this, in the Bible, grace is not a thing that could run out. Grace is a person, grace is God himself sacrificially giving himself to you because he already gave himself for you on the cross. So each and every day, the gospel of grace is our tutor. The Holy Spirit brings these truths to mind, to our hearts. Grace is not a license to sin. Grace is a motivation to love. Grace doesn't mean, okay, now I can go do what I want. It's because I'm so loved and accepted that I don't want to hurt the heart of God by sinning and I don't want to hurt my brothers or sisters. So I want to do what is right. But even though I fail, I recognize it, but I'm not crushed under the weight of my guilt because Jesus took my guilt. That's what it's like being motivated by grace. In the college of God's grace, you never graduate and that is a good thing. It means that you will continually be transformed over and over again. So friends, I encourage you this morning to do this, to first of all, recognize your desperate situation. Recognize the idols that you have that might be blinding you to your need for grace, that might be blinding you to the glory of God's grace. If you're not yet a Christian, recognize that you need saving today and that there's no one or no thing that could ever possibly save you. Begin there, recognizing your need for grace and then you receive it. You don't earn it, you enjoy it. You don't say, I gotta go do like a thousand holy steps, you know, with my like sanctified Fitbit in order to like earn God's favor or whatever, like God has already made it available through Christ. You must simply receive it. You must receive God's grace through Jesus as a gift. And as you receive and receive and receive, you will begin to reflect that to the watching world. Isn't that right? I was reminded of this story that one day a cameraman was filming a church woman for a documentary. And while she was caring for the wretched and poor of India, as she was caring for all of these desperate people in need, as she was cleaning the sores of a leper, the cameraman sent, said very loudly and bluntly in front of the rest of the crew, as he watched her, he said, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. And this woman heard the man, stop what she was doing and turned and said to him, neither would I. And she went back and continued her work. Why? Because she was not serving to earn something She was serving because she had already had something. That's what it's meant to be like in the world of grace. Friends, you are to be motivated by grace. And as we receive his grace, we will reflect his grace to the watching world. That's how it works. Let's be amazed by grace this morning. And let's not hold back in our extravagant response to what he's done for us. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that right now in this moment, your Holy Spirit would take what is true and make it personal to every person. Make it real to every heart in this room and those joining us online. For those who are burdened, may they experience the relief and freedom that you provide through the grace of Jesus Christ. For those who feel that they've just gone too far, they're in too deep, may they say no to that lie and yes to even your grace reaches farther. For where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And may we be motivated, may we we be renewed and refreshed as we remember and receive your grace for every situation every circumstance, every need of our lives and if there is anyone this morning who does not yet know you I pray that right now as they're listening that they would turn to you in their hearts and say Jesus save me I understand this morning that nothing else is going to save me, I believe that you came that you died on a cross for all my sins and that you rose again to give me everlasting life. Father, if there's anyone here who has not yet made that decision right now, may they say from their heart, Jesus, save me. And may we all bask and glory and revel in the grace of God. Pray this together in Jesus' name. we have this moment right now and it's an important moment because it's the moment we respond to the grace of God. We respond to his unmerited favor. We respond to his love that he pursued you, that he loves you, that he rescues you, that he lifts you up out of the horrible pit. And so there's several ways in which we can do that before we get on with our plans and think about what we're gonna barbecue later, whatever, this is your moment. In a moment, there's gonna be men and women to my right and to my left, they're wearing the lanyards. They're part of our prayer ministry and they're here to pray with you and for you. And I wanna encourage you to come up and to receive prayer. Where is it that you need a fresh experience of grace in your life? Come up and pray. Stand up, walk through the aisles, doesn't matter, nobody cares, right, this is church come up, push your way through the aisles and come up and say, I need prayer. I need healing. I need direction. I need wisdom. I need guidance. I need grace. Jesus said, my house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations. Communion is available here on the stage. And as we remember the cost of Christ on the cross, we celebrate that. And we say like Jonah, salvation is of the Lord. If your faith and trust is in Jesus Christ, I invite all of you who believed upon him to celebrate that by coming forward and taking the bread, remembering his body broken, drinking the cup, remembering the blood that he shed for you. And say this morning, doesn't matter how I feel about it, the work is finished. The carpets are here. I invite you to come and you can get on your knees and you can lift your hands. Listen, friends, Reality Ventura should be a place where we are not ashamed to confess our desperation for God, right? This should not be a place where we're thinking like, oh, what are the other people gonna think about me if I go up for prayer? I don't wanna be a needy person. Let me tell you, we're all needy. Come to the carpets. That's why we put our hands up. That's why we're on our knees. We're saying, God, I'm nothing without you. And we declare that boldly and loudly and clearly because God meets us and he saves us and he lifts us up and he energizes us and he empowers us by his Holy Spirit. So let's celebrate that now, amen? Let's not hold back. Let's not let our self-righteousness or pride hold us back. Come and pray, celebrate communion and worship and sing this song, salvation is of the Lord. Let's do that now.